Welcome to One Market, keeping the Laurier Brantford community connected. I'm Bruce Gillespie. On this episode, we reflect on a year of remote teaching and learning with a faculty member who teaches material that's pretty heavy and challenging at the best of times. Then, we talk to a student who helped write and record a song celebrating International Women's Day with some of her Laurier Brantford peers, over Zoom, no less. And finally, we talk to one of the winners of this year's Acers Showcase, celebrating undergraduate research at Laurier. All that and more coming up on this episode of One Market. Our first guest is Sonia Murai, a contract faculty member in the Faculty of Social Work. As we reached the end of the semester, Sonia joined me to look back at our year of remote teaching and learning. Hi, Sonia, and thanks for joining us today on One Market. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you here, partly because I and Tara have already heard some of your stories about um, what teaching has been like during the pandemic and having to teach remotely. And if I'm not mistaken, you teach stats courses, which to my mind seem challenging to teach at the best of times. So I can't imagine having to do it remotely. So, So what's your remote teaching year been like? Yeah, so I teach um, in the BSW program at Laurier Brantford, um, and I'm giggling as I say this because I teach quantitative research methods and analysis, probably the most exciting course for social work students. <laughs> That's me being so sarcastic. Um <laughs> And I also teach uh, violence in families and critical issues in social work practice. But I find the research methods course um, the most challenging to teach in person. And so adapting it for uh, remote learning was quite interesting. So how much notice did you have that you would have to be teaching the quantitative methods course remote? Like, did you have like a whole summer to prep it? Did you have a, a couple of weeks? Like, how much time did you have to sort of ponder this? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I have been teaching this course for about four years now. And so the content I have, I would say it's kind of solidified. Um, but in terms of um, adapting it, yes, I had the summer to kind of think that through. Well, that's good, at least. I mean, I, I, I don't think it, just based on my own experience, I don't think having the summer to prepare necessarily makes you feel prepared when you actually yeah, get to September different. and do it. But it's nice to have some time to think about it, at least. Yeah, and that's all I did, actually, um, because I felt, <laughs> I felt like, wow, teaching during a crisis, a pandemic, um, that would be really hard to kind of anticipate everything because it's so uncertain, um, and so a lot of my prep work was just being super present and thinking through things rather than trying to become an expert, I would say, in in whatever this thing that we did <laughs> the last year has been. Um, and so it actually helped a lot in terms of being able to be super present with the students uh, with the content rather than kind of perfecting this kind of online learning process during a pandemic. I've said it before, and I continue to believe it. I think that's the right approach to take. I think trying to convince students or ourselves that we are experts in remote learning four, six, 12 months into the process is just not feasible. I mean, we're not. I think it will be clear that we're not. So I think it makes more sense to present yourself as I'm a person who's trying really hard. It will probably work some days better than others, and that's okay. We'll all get through this together. I think that's the only way to 
to approach this personally? Uh, yeah, for sure. Because it was, um, it was so difficult, uh, just being able to, um, be connected with the material itself. And so then being connected with students as well in a format where it doesn't really thrive on that. There's like this emphasis on in many ways, a disconnection, the connection's pretty much forced. And so because I'm very relational, um, it was quite the challenge. And so rather than try to, yeah, be that person that knows how to use the, I don't know, the poll function on Zoom, <laughs> I still don't know how to use that. And I always made the joke with students, um, and I'm not planning on learning how to use that right now because um, I don't think it's needed in a pandemic. <laughs> So I just, um, yeah, I was just super present with students and um, it did take a lot of energy. It does take a lot of energy to do that. Um, but for me, and I think for students, um, it was um, supportive in that way to actually feel connected that wasn't as superficial. So when you look back at the past year of remote teaching, what are some of the, some of the moments that stand out for you? Good or bad, I guess? Yeah, I think the Good bits are um, being able to talk about um, Netflix shows with students after class on Zoom. Um, so being able to do these things <laughs> that we would do in person. So being able to have that social time um, was very nice. Um, and in terms of the content, uh, what worked really well, I think, um, was just Again, having things ready for students, but not expecting students to have a lot of material read and um, kind of like this idea of like consuming so much information before coming onto a session in Zoom, but rather we go through it together and have conversation and dialogue around it. So that was uh, very helpful. What didn't work really well, I think my... Um, I think for myself, um, I love using humor and um, I found it difficult to, at first, I guess, to kind of get the, the energetic kind of response that I wanted that I would get in the classroom. So it was, it was more around me kind of having to adjust that, you know, silence on Zoom doesn't necessarily mean that um, people don't care. Um, I had to get used to the emoji responses. That was hard for me. That's a good point. I, I've often talked with colleagues about, because I remember being surprised by this when I first started teaching, but how much of classroom-based teaching is really a performance. I mean, you, you, you have an audience, you're, you're gauging your own performance by the energy and what they're putting in or how confused they look or, um, or the, how the discussion is going. You sort of adjust your performance to, to get to where you want based on what's happening. And you're right, that's so much harder on Zoom, especially if you're in a class where people don't feel like turning their cameras on or the Wi-Fi is not great or the sound isn't great. It's a whole different kind of, like I think Zoom teaching is still a performance, but it feels like a much different kind of performance than I'm used to because you, like you said, you're missing a lot of that, that feedback they're used to getting and really that informs what you do next. Yeah, I felt like I was on a TV show. So I think that's the difference. Whereas in in the classroom, um, that relational bit, that conversation that would occur, not just with words, but with body language, with just being in the presence of other people, being able to communicate in different ways without using words, 
Um, and then on Zoom, I really felt like I was in like a 12-part series for Netflix. Um, <laughs> Was it one of those thrillers or? I don't know. Like if we look at the methods course, maybe a thriller of uncertainty. <laughs> right. um, one of those Nordic mysteries that doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. And then teaching violence in families, um, also not very helpful on Zoom um, because of the content and the, you know, the, just the the depth of the content uh, being uh, challenging at times already in person. So having that material on Zoom was even more so difficult. So I felt like, yeah, the series really shifted also based on the the um, the, the actual course that I was teaching. That totally makes sense. And I think to your point about feeling you're on TV, I only, I'm embarrassed to say how late in the year I realize this, that you can actually turn your sort of self view off of yourself in Zoom. Whereas, what? So, yes. If apparently if you right click over your own picture, you can sort of turn your self view off, which I. Oh my gosh. It has been life changing because I'm like, I no longer feel like I'm watching myself on TV. Like I've never looked at myself so much in my life. And I'm just like so tired of it. I just learned something so valuable today. Well, well, and maybe other people will as well. Again, I, I don't remember. All of you take note out there because that <laughs> exactly. is the worst function of Zoom is having to see yourself over and over again while you're talking. And sometimes I would get caught up because I would, uh, I'm like, oh my goodness, there's a strand of hair out of place. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't act. I thought I brushed my hair, but I didn't really brush it for it to be, you know, you know, ready for the, the the camera or the video. Oh my goodness, life changing. Yeah, this is how we get through it. We share what we learn with everyone else and hopefully it makes everybody's life a little bit better. <laughs> that just did. So I know that you're working on your PhD as well as teaching. How has that been going for you again in this year of sort of studying remotely? Yeah, first of all, who does that? You know, <laughs> what? What did I sign up for? Um, I love teaching. Teaching is something that I um, enjoy because I'm also learning with the students. And so being a PhD student while teaching is so amazing because we have something to talk about in terms of outside of that teacher instructor uh, or that mm. instructor student dynamic. Um you know, being able to to say to students, I did not finish all of my readings um, either, so it's okay. Or I'm also working on an assignment. Um, so that's been very, I think, supportive for students and myself. Again, just being able to navigate being a student and, and remembering how challenging it can be, um, especially when you have to work and have other responsibilities outside of school. Yeah, it must really make things more, um, but put that context in exactly, like, you know, reminding us what students are actually going through versus what you may remember from 10 or 15 years ago. That's right. It it reminds me of, oh, yes, you know, it actually, it's not that easy to read 10 articles, you know, times how many courses a student is taking. Um, I forgot about that until I re-entered into you know, being a PhD student and having that remembering also supports me in navigating academic life with students as well. 
Well, I'm sure they'd appreciate that. I mean, I'm sure that comes through in, in, in the way you teach. I hope so. I mean, let's be real. Did I submit my assignment on time? No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> and I share that with them because I think sometimes we, we kind of set, un, I don't know, sometimes there are these expectations that can be unrealistic. And so being able to embody the flexibility and being adaptable, I think is important in the relationship building. Well put. Sonia, good luck with all of your work. And thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This was, I feel famous already. Thank you. Our next guest is Erica Kazul, a third year youth and children's studies student who recently worked with some of her peers to write and record a song for International Women's Day. The song is called Girl on the Rise, and we've included a link on our website where you can listen to it. But before you do that, here's Erica on how she got involved with the project. I'm a co-coordinator for the Women's Center who put the, on the event. Um, and we heard about it back in November. Uh, we were given this opportunity to create the song. Um, and we, and from there, it just kind of took off where we just started planning the event, getting people involved. Um, yeah. And then the event happened. And it was really incredible. Um, honestly, I'm not an artistic kind of person. And it was really cool to see how a song comes together and just a whole bunch of self-identified women coming together and like talking about issues that we faced in our daily day lives and like putting it in that kind of piece was really cool. And yeah. And it was part of the International Women's Day celebrations, right? Yeah. So that was our way of kind of having an event and doing something really special, but virtually. So for those of us who haven't written songs before, let alone written them with strangers in a virtual remote kind of way walk us through the process like how does this even happen um so it just started off with alicia the facilitator she was just amazing and she started it off by just singing a couple of her songs and having us draw a free flow and just like kind of feel the music and put it onto paper um, just to get us in the mindset. And then after we all kind of showed our drawings and that's how we kind of like started bonding. And then we kind of sat down and because we were all kind of their self-identified woman, um, we started to brainstorm ideas um, and like just talk about our experiences and how we feel and how what we wanted this song to come across as. Um, and it just kind of worked from there, from that like common denominator that we all are women. And that was really incredible. Um, and then it was just kind of everyone spitballing ideas, whether it was in the chat or out loud and um, just strumming and kind of creating it together. It took about two hours of just us bringing out ideas and throwing ideas in the garbage because we just didn't like them. <laughs> it's amazing to me to think that um, a bunch of strangers with, again, different backgrounds and experience in terms of songwriting could actually come up with anything in two hours. This to me seems miraculous. I, so I just, I, I love the idea of it. How many people did you have involved? So there was about 15 people there. There was, they were all over the place where some of them were Laurier students and some of them were just friends that really wanted to come and experience this along with um, like woman center coordinators that were there to facilitate the event. Um, yeah, it was just like a mis mishmash of people that just came out and kind of bonded and wrote a song 
how we about how we felt. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the song itself. The song itself, it's just very empowering. And I don't know, every time I listen to it, I just become really proud because it's something so unique. I think every section of the song kind of means something a bit different to everyone. Um, and like the contributions were like, uh, I'm not going to sing it. I'm not a song. I'm not a <laughs> the vocalist, but there's a part that says sing, sing with me, woman in my community. And that was like my contribution that kind of stuck mm. and it was really impactful. Um, and I had, when I, we did a screening a couple weeks later, um, just with some friends and someone was like, that's honestly like that part hits me the most. And that was such a cool feeling because I was like, that was the part I wrote. Like I put, that's like the one that I chose and everyone liked it. And now you're telling me someone that wasn't there was like, that's the part that hit me the most. So I think just like how, how different everyone's views are when interpreting and like listening to the song and how it just hits people and having that connection definitely was fun. It's such a, a wonderful experience. Again, I just thought it was such a, a great idea when I heard about it. And I like the idea that that, that, um, that you were able to bring in like a professional singer, songwriter, producer to help sort of facilitate this workshop as opposed to just um, people with no experience trying to put this together. Right? You had someone who knew exactly what she was doing to lead this, which must have been really fun to work with her too. Yeah, it definitely was. She, Alicia was incredible. She knew what she was doing. She knew how to facilitate the group and like kind of get us all bonding. Um, and it was one of those things where, where she just knew what to do and where to take things where like everyone was just kind of spitballing ideas and she would be able to be like, that works. And we would start playing it or she would start playing it. Not me. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> musically talented, but it was just such a unique experience because she just would just we would get an idea she would um start playing it on the guitar and we would be like you know what that doesn't really work let's trash that or like let's try it this way and there would be like someone that would be like ah uh, let's tweak it that way and it was just like a really cool experience to have that it sounds amazing again i mean how many of us get that kind of experience right to sort of collaborate together on on, on, on a song. Again, like you said, if you're not musical to begin with, I think like many of us are not, that, that's not something we'd ever consider doing. Like maybe we'd collaborate on, you know, an essay, a document, a presentation, but, but a song is just so, such a unique kind of experience. And what a wonderful thing to take away from this very strange year. Like you can always look back and say, hey, that was the year I wrote a song. Over Zoom. That's also what is crazy about it was that it was over Zoom. Like it wasn't like we were in person or like we had met, it was like, we met on Zoom. I didn't know, I don't know what half these people look like because their face cameras weren't on. But like, we still have that connection and that like really impactfulness from writing a song together, which was really amazing. I mean, if you can write a song with strangers over Zoom, I, is there anything we cannot do over Zoom, right? Like this is the, if you can write a song, you can do it all. We, well, we, we did it and we proved that we could. So I'd like everyone to just put know that you can write a song over Zoom with strangers and it turned <laughs> out really good. Erica, thank you so much for telling us about this today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Our final guest is Tess Kibsey, 
a first-year user experience design student who won second place in the video category at this year's Acer's Showcase, celebrating undergraduate research at Laurier. Her project was designing a prototype for an app that will help people shop more safely during the pandemic. I started by asking her how she came up with the idea in the first place. I'm a UX student, so one of my courses that I took last term was um, about making a design solution for something that has to do with the pandemic. And so my topic that I was given was coordinating staggered visits to places to limit overcrowding and pollution, which is a pretty heavy topic. So it took a lot of brainstorming and just a lot of thinking about how I could approach the design problem and what I can do to kind of fix it or provide a solution for it. Um, the idea of ShopSafe came when I was looking at my interviews that I conducted. So I interviewed um, my parents as well as a few friends to kind of see what they felt about how the pandemic was being handled and also things like what they thought would work if someone were to implement a solution. So a few people told me things like, oh, well, maybe if I could track how many people are in a store, that would make me feel safer. Or maybe I, if I could track how many COVID cases were at a certain shop. Um, so I kind of brought all of those ideas into one thing. And then the idea of ShopSafe came when I decided that being able to track different um, numbers of people in stores and also trying to get to stores in an eco-friendly kind of way would definitely help people in a pandemic world, seeing as um, it kind of looks like we're not going to be out of this anytime soon. So I decided to create an app so it was more accessible to people, seeing as everyone has a phone these days. And I kind of just added a few elements in where you could search up a place, you could look at the amount of COVID cases or the amount of people allowed in the store or what their max capacity was. And then you can make that you can make a educated decision on where you want to go. So if, uh, for example, let's say you wanted to go to Freshco, but you check the thing um, or you check the app and it's super busy at that time of day. So you decide to check it later. So it kind of just helps you make sure that you're staying safe while going outside, seeing as having contact with other people is tricky these days. And so I just came up with the idea to kind of help people navigate the pandemic a little easier. And I think it's such a great idea because I remember, particularly in those early months of the pandemic, that was a really big question, I think, for most of us, that I would like to go to the drugstore, I would like to go to the grocery store, but I don't want to end up there at the same time that everyone else in my town is also there. So I remember yeah. sort of doing a lot of like asking friends, family, like was, you know, when you went to the drugstore at 10 o'clock in the morning, was it super busy? Was it less busy at six? Sort of trying to crowdsource, you know, from people who'd been to these places, well, how, how busy they were and when, um, and how frustrating that was because th th there's really no great way to sort of guess or predict this. Right. So I yeah, thought exactly. when I was looking, when I was looking through the video about your app, I thought this is a really smart idea. If there's a way you actually could get a real-time sort of look at how many people are in one place so you could decide, yes, this is a good time for me to go, or no, I'm not willing to take this risk, I'll go a couple hours later. Yeah, exactly. That was kind of the aim of what I was doing with ShopSafe is just making sure it's easier for people to check those stores. And like you said, like you don't know necessarily unless you're asking other people whether the store is busy at that time of day because it changes throughout the day. 
So being able to track that on an app where it's just a few clicks and you can see if where you want to go is busy or not, it really helps people and keeps people safe. One of the things I really enjoyed about your video that, that was posted as part of Acers was the the really clear but also very visual way you walked us through the prototyping process. Because I think many of us have probably not thought about, or maybe we've thought about creating an app and that we've gone no further than that. Like, I wish there was an app that did this, but never actually thought yeah. about it more. And your video, it does a really great job of visualizing what that process looks like from initial idea to how you get it actually onto a phone, what the process looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that process for people who haven't been involved in it before? Yeah. So um, with a design process like creating an app, um, there's a lot of different, uh, I guess you could call them, what would you call them? <laughs> um, I would say there's a lot of different design problems throughout and different strategies that you can use um, throughout the design process to come up with a solution. So one of those things is called a user persona. So in my video, I'm talking about this businessman named Phil. And he was actually my persona that I used when I was coming up with the idea for ShopSafe. So um, with a persona, you kind of come up with a user or a person that would be using your app or using your service or whatever you're trying to develop. And you come up with their pain points, so things that they find challenging or frustrating, as well as their gain points, so things that they strive off of or things that they love or look forward to. And you kind of build up this type of user category that you are targeting when you're coming up with your design solution. So the persona was a big part of that. That's why I decided to go with the narrative aspect of my video and Mm -hmm. use Phil as the center of my story, I guess you could say. Um, And then there's also things like journey maps where you're kind of using that same persona or a different one if you've come up with more than one um, and kind of following them through what um, what the journey would be for them. So for example, if I were starting with Phil as a businessman who wants to go grocery shopping while keeping his family safe, then I would start with him at the first stage, which is his problem. So he wants to do this or he wants to go grocery shopping safely. And then I move through the journey of how he would get to the safe solution, which would be shop safe in this situation. So there's things like that that you do during the design process. Um, There's a lot of interviews involved, a lot of inquiries in terms of how people use an app, what buttons they press, where they like it to be on a screen. And you kind of just go through a lot of those questions with your interviewers um, or interviewees, I should say. And it's just a lot of trial and error as well, because you try and set up a uh, low fidelity prototype, which is like a sketch of what my app became. And you go through and you see, okay, so this person said that they didn't like where the home button was. So maybe I should try and fix that or change that next time. So it's a lot of trial and error and just seeing what works best. I say, and it was great to sort of be able to walk through that process with you narratively in your video. So I think people really enjoy watching it. I also learned something, um, which is totally non-new for me, but I'd never heard the phrase gain points before. I think we've all heard of pain points, like those part of the process that make you insane. Yeah. Um, I'd never heard of gain points. It's like, oh, there's a positive side of this. I'd never thought of it. So, so I learned something. So thank you for that. For that. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about 
what it was like to be involved in the ACERS process? Because I know there's some training that happens along the way. Can you tell us about some of that? Yeah, for sure. So I first learned about the ACERS um, through the email given by the university. And I decided to submit my project for it since I did so much work on it. I thought I should see if it could get recognized a little bit. Um, so I had to submit a um, approval from my prof for the project to be submitted. So that was the first stage. And then once you do that and you're technically nominated, they have a bunch of workshops available. So based on what type of submission you were doing, you would attend that workshop and get some information about it. So the three categories for the ACERs were posters, podcasts, and videos. And I determined that a video would probably be the best way to present my project. So I signed up for the video workshop and it was about an hour, an hour and a half. And it had a bunch of information about how to create a really good video. There was someone from an actual video company. I'm forgetting the name right now, but he works with a company and he does all of the promotional videos and editing and all of that kind of stuff. And he basically just walked us through how to properly get audio, how to record properly. If you're doing a voiceover, how to add that onto your video without any crazy, uh, weird editing things happening to it and just make a smooth video. He was really helpful just showing things that were super easy or little shortcuts that you could go through to kind of, um, I guess, make your video better. And so we all had to attend that workshop. It was a mandatory one, but I found it very helpful. Um, and then from there, they gave you a list of requirements for your video. So the video had to be at least, um, I, I believe it was at least four minutes long. And there was a few requirements about you needed to um, describe your, uh, your project you needed to have some sort of visual component and you could either do a voiceover or you could be in the video. So for mine, I chose to do a voiceover instead just to stick to that narrative aspect. And basically you just follow the requirements and you can ask them any questions as you go through. They give you the email to send along any questions or concerns. And it's just a really awesome process. Once you submit, they um, have a showcase, of course, at the end and they tell you a few days ahead of time if you were a finalist and then you come on and then they um, just explained the categories to everybody and then went through each category listing um, the first, second and third place winners. And then each person got to do a little description of their project. So when my name was called, I was able to explain my project again in a concise form to help people understand what my video was about. Um, but overall, it was a really great process and I really enjoyed submitting for the ACERS and I would probably do it again if I have the opportunity. That's so great to hear, as especially what a great experience for you to have as, as a first year student. I just think that's a, a, a really remarkable sort of research experience to get in your first year of university. So congratulations again yeah. and thank you so much for telling us about it today. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for the penultimate episode of One Market. We hope it's helped you feel a little more connected to the Laurier Brantford community, and we'll be back with our final episode in two weeks. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends and colleagues. 
You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Worried about missing an episode? Sign up for our newsletter. You can find a link on Twitter and Facebook at OneMarketLB. One Market was created and produced by Bruce Gillespie and Tara Brookfield. Music by Scott Holmes. Graphics by Melissa Weaver. Our research assistant and intern is Serena Austin. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch. 